Section 76, Introduction. One of the foremost revelations to be received in modern times is Section 76. It not only reveals the details of the three degrees of glory, but we also learn about the three degrees of death. In the discussion of this section, we discover the ultimate destiny of Satan and the sons of perdition. We learn what weapons were used during the war in heaven. We learn a multitude of details concerning the whole spectrum of God's magnificent destiny for his children, which cannot be found in any other scripture. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon received this revelation on February the 16th, 1832, shortly after they had returned to Hiram from the conference in Amherst, Ohio. They had immediately begun the revision of the New Testament, but when they reached John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, this is the way the Lord inspired Joseph Smith to dictate these two verses. Quote, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all who are in their graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they who have done good in the resurrection of the just, they who have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. Unquote. Joseph Smith indicates that both he and Sidney Rigdon were disturbed by these two verses. Perhaps it was because the Lord said the wicked would be resurrected as well as the righteous. In any event, Joseph assured Sidney that this was precisely the words in which the Lord had dictated these verses to him. Joseph was still in the revelatory spirit and therefore he decided to ask the Lord for more enlightenment concerning the resurrection and the meaning of these two verses. Neither Joseph nor Sidney Rigdon would have guessed the glorious and spectacular revelation the Lord would give them in response to this request. This brings us to the famous 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which Wendell Noble will now commence. Hear, O ye heavens! And give ear, O earth, and rejoice, ye inhabitants thereof. For the Lord is God, and beside him there is no Savior. Great is his wisdom, marvelous are his ways, and the extent of his doings none can find out. It is amazing how little mankind knows about the earth and the human family except as the Lord has revealed it. In fact, our knowledge of the pre-existence, the purpose of life, the plan of salvation, and the road to genuine human happiness are all based on direct revelations from God. His purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay his hand. From eternity to eternity he is the same, and his years never fail. No matter how men or nations contrive to change the pattern of life and attain their own version of happiness, they always fail. By way of contrast, all who have followed the Lord's instructions have found peace, happiness, and prosperity. God's way is the eternal way. It never fails. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me, and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. 
No matter how frustrated and disappointed the father's children are when they seek substitutes for happiness such as alcohol, drugs, immorality, or crime, all the Lord requires is repentance, and he welcomes them back. And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old, and for ages to come will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. The reward of the humble truth-seekers are tremendous. The Lord showers upon them by direct revelation and indirect inspiration the vast treasures of heavenly mysteries. They gain insight into the ancient past and the glorious secrets of the prophetic future. And their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven. And before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. Joseph Smith was an excellent example of this inherent capacity for maturing wisdom. When he ran for president of the United States, it was not so much to win that high office as it was to have the opportunity to present a platform of principles that would be a light to the nation. When I studied political science at George Washington University, I was inspired by the wisdom and intelligence which Joseph Smith exhibited in his political writings. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. Yea, even those things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. The invaluable advantage of having the inspiration of God as a study companion is the enlightenment which comes through the whispering of the Spirit. It anticipates things that have not been seen, nor have even entered into the heart of man. In the next nine verses, Joseph Smith describes how he and Sidney Rignan happened to receive this priceless revelation of section 76. We, Joseph Smith, Jr., and Sidney Rigdon, being in the Spirit on the sixteenth day of February, in the year of our Lord, 1832, by the power of the Spirit our eyes were opened, and our understandings were enlightened, so as to see and understand the things of God. They were prayerfully seeking the enlightenment of the Spirit, as they revised the Gospel of John. Suddenly they began to have open revelations with an accompanying commentary which gave them a profound understanding of the things that they saw. Even those things which were from the beginning before the world was, which were ordained of the Father through his only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, even from the beginning, of whom we bear record, and the record which we bear is the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son, whom we saw, and with whom we conversed in the heavenly vision. They saw the beginning of the earth's existence, and how the Savior was designated to become the general manager of our round of creation. 
The most exciting part of this experience was the fact that they were allowed to talk with the Savior face to face and converse with him throughout this heavenly vision. In the next three verses, Joseph describes how they happened to make the inquiry that resulted in this revelation. For while we were doing the work of translation which the Lord had appointed unto us, we came to the twenty-ninth verse of the fifth chapter of John, which was given unto us as follows, speaking of the resurrection of the dead, concerning those who shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and shall come forth, they who have done good in the resurrection of the just, and they who have done evil in the resurrection of the unjust. The inspired rendition of the verse in the Gospel of John seemed to confirm the fact that there are different levels of glory in heaven. This led to their request for more knowledge. Now this caused us to marvel, for it was given unto us of the Spirit. And while we meditated upon these things, the Lord touched the eyes of our understandings, and they were opened, and the glory of the Lord shone round about. It must have been a glorious experience to have their prayer answered with this wonderful heavenly vision. And we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father, and received of his fullness to see the Savior standing at the right hand of the Father was equal to the vision shown to Stephen in the days of the apostles, as described in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. And saw the holy angels, and them who are sanctified before his throne, worshiping God and the Lamb, who worship him forever and ever. And the Lord's two modern servants saw a host of angelic beings worshiping the Father and the Son. From verses 22 to 24, we find that Joseph and Sidney Rigdon were so overwhelmed with the glory of the Father and the Son that they felt compelled to bear their own scientific witness of what they were seeing. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him, even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. They also felt compelled to describe the details of the fall of Satan. He had been an angel of God who was an authority among the concourses of heavenly beings. However, it became Satan's ambition to rebel against the Father's beloved Son and even undercut the vast domain of the Father himself. And this we saw also and bear record that an angel of God who was in authority in the presence of God who rebelled against the only begotten Son whom the Father loved and who was in the bosom of the Father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son and was called perdition. For the heavens wept over him. He was Lucifer, a son of the morning. And we beheld, and lo, he is fallen, is fallen, even a son of the morning. And while we were yet in the Spirit, 
the Lord commanded us that we should write the vision. For we beheld Satan, that old serpent, even the devil who rebelled against God, and sought to take the kingdom of our God and his Christ. In this last verse, the Lord instructs Joseph and Sidney to boldly record Satan's great sin. He had actually aspired to overthrow the celestial dominion of both the Father and the Son. This all began shortly before the launching of the Spirit creation. The Father called together the first great council of the organized intelligences to determine who would be the general manager of the spirit creation or first estate. The Father asked, Whom shall I send? And one answered, Like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And another answered and said, Here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate. And at that time many followed after him. Now that's in Abraham chapter 3, verses 27 to 28. So this poisonous hatred which Satan had generated against the Savior had been brewing for a long time. But after the spirit creation was completed, the Father was ready to call another great council. The purpose of this convocation was to choose a redeemer or mediator without which this entire round of creation would be lost. First of all, the Father explained that with each round of creation, there has to be a Redeemer. He then asked who would provide the redemptive sacrifice. Suddenly, a fantastic development occurred. Lucifer leaped forward. Satan hated the idea of an atoning sacrifice which required an infinite quantity of suffering by the mediator which would be so compelling that the host of intelligence would overlook the sins of the repentant and grant complete forgiveness to all of those for whom the Savior would intercede. It is highly significant that Satan had not kept his first estate, according to Abraham 4 and 28, but had spent his time conjuring up a scheme which he wanted the Father to accept in place of the atoning sacrifice which the family of the gods had always used down through the eternities. Satan was so proud of the scheme he had cleverly concocted that he demanded the honor of inventing it. That's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 29 and 36. The core of Satan's plan was to completely suspend free agency during the second estate and compel the father's children to conform to celestial law. Then none would be lost because of sin. He carefully explained how this marvelous scheme would operate. Under Satan's plan, there would be no necessity for an atoning sacrifice by anyone. In fact, no sin or evil of any kind would be allowed. No suffering would have to be endured. No judgment would be required. No punishment would be inflicted. And there would be no failures. The entire family of the Father would be automatically saved under Satan's plan. Of course, Satan had missed the most important element. The whole purpose of the second estate was to help the Father's children distinguish between good and evil. Their exposure to evil and the consequences of its influence 
was needed to galvanize them against the temptations of evil throughout all eternity. But of course, Satan's plan would not do that. It would actually deprive the father's children of learning the difference between good and evil. They could go through life in a satanical straitjacket and learn nothing because all of those choices would be made for them. Therefore, when Jehovah perceived how the abominable plan of Satan was shrewdly designed to rob the father of his celestial kingdom and deprive Jehovah of his divinely assigned mission, Jesus stepped forward. He volunteered to go through the agonies of the redemptive sacrifice that would not only provide the redemption for the Father's human family, but save this whole round of creation. The moment the Savior agreed to fulfill the traditional role of the mediator, the Father accepted it. This meant the bizarre plan of Lucifer was rejected. Suddenly there was an uproar in heaven. Wherefore he maketh war with the saints of God, and encompasseth them round about. A large segment of the father's children liked the plan proposed by Satan. After all, it guaranteed them salvation without any effort on their part. It made all the choices for them. It eliminated the awful necessity of a blood sacrifice, and it offered them complete salvation on a silver platter. Oh, they were entirely enthralled with Satan's plan, and they were willing to wage war to have it adopted. It is interesting that the traditional plan of salvation proposed by Jesus was desperately defended by the Father's loyal followers. John the Revelator says the righteous fought with their testimonies, which, when you think about it, is the only weapon available in the spirit world. And John says this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. In other words, this was a war of words to earnestly try to persuade Satan's disciples that if they followed Lucifer, they would never get physical bodies. In fact, they would even lose their spirit bodies and be cast back into outer darkness as stripped naked intelligences. But in spite of this endeavor, one-third of the father's children were casualties in this war. No amount of reasoning, loving persuasion, or patient testimony-bearing could persuade them to accept the plan of Jesus. They recklessly gambled away their legacies of eternal progression and exaltation for a fraudulent promise which was nothing more than a diabolical illusion. Finally, when the quarrel had extended itself beyond all reasonable bounds, the father felt compelled to force Satan out of heaven and across the veil into the temporal world. There, for the next 6,000 years, the war between good and evil would continue. But eventually, Satan and his hosts would face their ultimate fate, banishment forever back into outer darkness. And we saw a vision of the sufferings of those with whom he made war and overcame. For thus came the voice of the Lord unto us. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon actually got to see what will happen to those who were overcome by Satan. Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power, and have been made partakers thereof, and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome, and to deny the truth and defy my power. This part of the vision begins with those who at first were highly favored of God. 
They were scientific witnesses to God's power. They were even allowed to exercise that power and see the marvelous manifestations of the Holy Ghost. But after having become witnesses and participants in God's glorious kingdom, they let Lucifer seduce them into committing treason against God. They denied what they knew to be true and literally defied God to do anything about it. They are they who are the sons of perdition, of whom I say that it had been better for them never to have been born. Their punishment is so horrible, the Lord says it would have been better if they had never been born. In other words, if they were still back in their earlier stage of primitive intelligences, they would not have as yet committed this unpardonable sin. But now it is too late. They have not only been born into the second estate, but they have used their free agency to betray the Father. That is why they will ultimately be consigned into outer darkness forever. For they are vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity, concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. The Lord makes it very clear that the sons of perdition cannot gain forgiveness either in this life or the life to come. Having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves, and put him to an open shame. The Lord compares the sons of perdition with those who crucified the Savior. This verse says that they had partaken of the same hateful spirit as those who crucified Jesus and did everything they could to put him to open shame. These are they who shall go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels. Now the Lord makes two very significant statements. He says, And the only ones on whom the second death shall have any power, yea, verily, the only ones who shall not be redeemed in the due time of the Lord, after the sufferings of his wrath. In these three verses, the Lord is saying that they who rejected the plea of Jesus to bring their sins under the redemption of his atonement must satisfy the demands of justice by paying for their sins themselves. The individual spirits of the wicked will feel the agony of suffering until the whole universe of intelligences feel thoroughly satisfied that they have paid the uttermost farthing. Jesus refers to this process of suffering for their individual sins to the uttermost farthing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 26. They must suffer until all those that they have hurt and have sinned against will finally say, Father, that is enough. They must suffer until the Father and the intelligences of the universe are satisfied that the demands of justice have been met. Meanwhile, a different fate awaits the devil and his angels, as well as the sons of perdition who betrayed the Father during their earth life. Brigham Young describes what is in store for the devil and his angels, as well as the sons of perdition. He says, They will be decomposed, both soul and body and return to their native element. In other words, they lose their identities. 
The elements comprising their resurrected bodies are taken away from them and incorporated in the elements of the resurrected earth. This is Brigham Young speaking in Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 54. Then he continues, They will be disorganized, and it will be as though they never had been, while we will live and retain our identity and contend against those principles which tend to death or disillusion. Unquote. And that can be found in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 7, page 57. Brigham Young concludes this statement by saying, quote, I want to preserve my identity so that you can see Brigham in the eternal worlds just as you see him now, unquote. And that can be found in the same source, Journal of Discourses, Volume 7, page 57. For all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead, through the triumph and the glory of the Lamb who was slain who was in the bosom of the Father before the worlds were made. And this is the gospel, the glad tidings, which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us, that he came into the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world, and to bear the sins of the world, and to sanctify the world, and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness, those who suffer the second death would never have had to endure this torture if they had just repented, embraced the gospel, and endured to the end. The atonement of Jesus Christ would have cleansed them of all unrighteousness. That through him all might be saved, whom the Father had put into his power and made by him. The atonement was structured by the Father to save all those who are willing to bring themselves under the matchless power of the Savior's redemption. Who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. In fact, we have learned from the scriptures we have just read that the Father's plan of redemption allows all his children, either through the atonement of Christ or through suffering for their own sins, to be redeemed to some degree of glory, but the exception is the sons of perdition. Nothing will save them. Wherefore he saves all except them. They shall go away into everlasting punishment, which is endless punishment, which is eternal punishment to reign with the devil and his angels in eternity, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, which is their torment. But the sons of perdition must endure the everlasting punishment of outer darkness, where they exist endlessly with Satan and his angels as stripped naked intelligences. The Lord says this will be their fate throughout all the dimensions of eternity and the end thereof, neither the place thereof, nor their torment, no man knows. It is incomprehensible what this endless, lonely, helpless endurance must be like. No wonder the heavens wept over them. Neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will be revealed unto man, except to them who are made partakers thereof. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, show it by vision unto many, but straightway shut it up again. Wherefore the end, the width, the height, the depth, 
and the misery thereof they understand not. Neither any man, except those who are ordained unto this condemnation. The Lord says he has revealed his terrible state of misery to many, but immediately shuts it up, which implies that it is erased from their minds, and therefore no one can really describe the horrors of this punishment except those who have been consigned to endure it. And we heard the voice saying, Write the vision, for lo, this is the end of the vision of the sufferings of the ungodly. At this point, the Lord wants Joseph to write down what they have seen thus far, because apparently they have concluded the first section of this vision. And again we bear record, for we saw and heard, and this is the testimony of the gospel of Christ concerning them who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. Apparently Joseph was given time to record this first part of the vision, and immediately afterwards the heavens were opened again, so that Joseph and Sidney were able to see the glorious reward of the righteous. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name, and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given. To begin with, there are those who gained a living testimony of the gospel and entered into a covenant with the Lord through baptism. That by keeping the commandments they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins and receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of the hands of him who is ordained and sealed unto this power. Therefore, by obeying the covenants and commandments of the Lord, they became endowed with the Spirit of the Lord. Through that Spirit they were forgiven of their sins. They were also sealed up by the Spirit, and by the laying on of hands they were given the gifts and power of the Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And who overcome by faith, and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. Thereafter it is by endurance and faithfulness that the righteous are eventually sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. This comes as a special gift from the Father. It is an endowment or ordinance conferred on the Lord's choicest servants as a result of a direct revelation. They are they who are the church of the firstborn. They are they into whose hands the Father has given all things. The church of the firstborn are those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and are destined to be joint heirs of Christ by receiving the fullness of the Father's kingdom. They are they who are priests and kings, who have received of his fullness and of his glory, and are priests of the Most High after the order of Melchizedek, which was after the order of Enoch, which was after the order of the only begotten Son. The fullness of the Father's kingdom includes being ordained priests and kings, no matter by what name it may have been known through the ages. For example, it was once upon a time called the order of Melchizedek, at another time the order of Enoch, and still at another time the order of the only begotten Son. These are all various names in ancient times for the holy priesthood. Wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God. These constitute the highest order of the eternal heavens, 
those who have attained the title of gods, the very sons of God. Wherefore all things are theirs, whether life or death, or things present, or things to come, all are theirs, and they are Christ's, and Christ is God's, and they shall overcome all things. Wherefore, let no man glory in man, but rather let him glory in God, who shall subdue all enemies under his feet. These shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. It is impossible to describe the blessings which derive from those high and sacred titles. It means all things are theirs, whether things living on earth or things which have passed on into the spirit world. They own that which is present or yet to come. All things are theirs, and they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That is why they will overcome all things and dwell in the presence of God and the Savior Jesus Christ forever. These are they whom he shall bring with him when he shall come in the clouds of heaven to reign on the earth over his people. These are they who shall have part in the first resurrection. These are they who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. These are they who are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all. At the time of the second coming, the righteous will be caught up from the earth and will join the Savior and come down with him from the clouds of heaven. Jesus will also bring with him all the just who have been raised up in the first resurrection, and they shall all descend together with the saints to the new Jerusalem or the holy city of Zion, the city of the living God. These are they who have come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of Enoch, and of the firstborn. At this time the city of Enoch will be coming back to the earth, and there will be great rejoicing as that great metropolis from heaven unites with the people of the new Jerusalem here on earth. These are they whose names are written in heaven, where God and Christ are the judge of all. These are they who are just men made perfect, through Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the Son, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the Son of the firmament is written of as being typical. These glorious hosts will include all of those whose names are written in heaven and who were just men made perfect. These are those who come forth in glory with celestial bodies like unto the sun. Now, having described the rapture of those who attain the celestial kingdom, Jesus moves on to describe the glories of the terrestrial kingdom. And again, we saw the terrestrial world. And behold, and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial, whose glory differs from that of the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even as that of the moon differs from the sun in the firmament. It is traditional to compare the celestial glory to the sun and the terrestrial glory to the moon. Behold, these are they who died without law, these are those who lived out their lives on earth without the benefit of God's law. 
However, it is assumed that they were given a chance to hear God's law after they died. Had they accepted it, they would have gone on to the celestial kingdom. Those who died without the law usually include the heathen nations. And amazingly, the heathen nations come forth in the first resurrection. That's in Doctrine and Covenants 45 and 54. Even though verse 22 would indicate that the majority of the pagans end up in the terrestrial kingdom, it is interesting that candidates for the celestial kingdom can elect to go to the terrestrial glory if the celestial law seems too strict for them. We are told in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 22, that the level of law which a person elects to follow determines the level of glory a person receives. This is how we know that some celestial beings might choose a terrestrial glory. This could also be true of children who die before they reach the age of accountability. They are automatically heirs to the celestial kingdom, but they could choose the terrestrial kingdom if they preferred the lower level of law which prevails there. And also they who are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited, and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. The phrase, those who were kept in prison, unquote, appears to refer to those who heard the gospel in mortal life, such as the people in the days of Noah, but rejected it. In the spirit world, they heard it again, and this time they accepted it. This entitles them to go to the terrestrial kingdom, but they forfeited the celestial kingdom by rejecting it the first time. These are they who are honorable men of the earth who were blinded by the craftiness of men. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness. There are many honorable men and women in the earth who are reluctant to accept the gospel in this life, even though they do finally accept it in the spirit world. All of these go to the terrestrial kingdom. These are they who receive of the presence of the Son, but not of the fullness of the Father. Wherefore they are bodies terrestrial and not bodies celestial, and differ in glory as the moon differs from the sun. Those of the terrestrial glory can never go back into the presence of the Father. Nevertheless, they do receive the ministrations of the Son, Jesus Christ. These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Wherefore, they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. The terrestrial kingdom also includes members of the church who started out strong but did not remain valiant. These inherit the terrestrial glory. And now this is the end of the vision which we saw of the terrestrial, that the Lord commanded us to write while we were yet in the Spirit. Once again the Savior interrupts the vision to have Joseph write down what they have just seen before they continue. And again... We saw the glory of the telestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differs from that of the glory of the moon in the firmament. We now come to the lowest of the three kingdoms of God. This kingdom is therefore compared to that of the stars, whereas the terrestrial is compared to that of the moon and the celestial to the glory of the sun. These are they who receive not the gospel of Christ, 
neither the testimony of Jesus. This means they completely rejected the gospel, whether in the earth or in the spirit world. These are they who deny not the Holy Spirit. However, they were never in a position to become sons of perdition by sinning against the Holy Ghost because it had never been manifested to them in all its power. These are they who are thrust down to hell. These not only rejected the gospel, but reveled in the degenerate, immoral debaucheries of life so that they were cast down to hell when death overtook them. These are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord, even Christ the Lamb, shall have finished his work. One of the penalties which accompanies sinners who die in their sins is the fact that they must remain in the prison of the spirit world from the time of their death until the very end of the millennium when the last resurrection takes place. These are they who receive not of his fullness in the eternal world, but of the Holy Spirit through the ministration of the terrestrial and the terrestrial through the ministration of the celestial, and also the celestial receive it of the administering of angels who are appointed to minister for them, or who are appointed to be ministering spirits for them, for they shall be heirs of salvation. Another penalty of the wicked after they are resurrected is the fact that they are never ministered to by the Father or the Son, but only indirectly by the Holy Spirit, which comes down to them in the form of ministering angels from the terrestrial kingdom. Nevertheless, it does say that these angelic beings are heirs of salvation and therefore have a comforting message for the denizens of the telestial order. And thus we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, which surpasses all understanding. And no man knows it, except him to whom God has revealed it. Although the modern reader may assume that the telestial kingdom holds out a dismal prospect for all who go there, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon had beheld the telestial glory and state that it was so wonderful it completely surpassed their understanding. In fact, they felt no one could conceive of its beauty and grandeur unless they had seen it in vision. And thus we saw the glory of the terrestrial, which excels in all things the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. But of course, if the telestial kingdom is glorious beyond comprehension, imagine what the glory of the terrestrial kingdom must be like. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever, before whose throne all things bow in humble reverence and give him glory forever and ever. They who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace, and he makes them equal in power and in might and in dominion. And the glory of the celestial is one, even as the glory of the sun is one. And the glory of the terrestrial is one, even as the glory of the moon is one.
And if a person has virtually run out of accolades trying to describe the terrestrial kingdom, what can be said about the celestial glory which surpasses them all? There the Father and the Son are seated on their thrones, and they have gathered before them the radiant and glorified members of the church of the firstborn. Now we learn some additional details concerning the telestial kingdom. We learn that even though the telestial kingdom is compared to the stars, the glory of those who comprise the telestial kingdom differ one from another as the radiance of the stars differ. And the glory of the telestial is one, even as the glory of the stars is one. For as one star differs from another star in glory, even so differs one from another in glory in the telestial world. It is amazing to learn that all of these in the telestial kingdom not only rejected the fullness of the gospel, but they had clung to a whole spectrum of different denominations. The scripture says, For these are they who are of Paul, and of Apollos, and of Cephas. These are they who say they are some of one and some of another, some of Christ, and some of John, and some of Moses, and some of Elias, and some of Isaiah, and some of Isaiah, and some of Enoch, but receive not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. This last verse would suggest that the telestial kingdom not only includes every variety of Christian denominations, but also the pagans, agnostics, and heathens who have rejected the gospel. Now the Lord indicates that the great fire, which consumed all of the egregiously wicked just before the second coming, not only destroyed them, but consigned them to the telestial kingdom. The scripture says, Last of all, these all are they who will not be gathered with the saints, to be caught up unto the church of the firstborn and received into the cloud. These are they who are liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers, and whosoever loves and makes a lie. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. These are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. We now come to a verse which shifts from the destruction and punishment of the wicked to the Savior's complete victory over them. We observe that the telestial is the largest of all the kingdoms, and that in spite of their depravity, debauchery, and rebellion against God, they do finally bow the knee to Christ in humble submission. These are they who are cast down to hell, and suffer the wrath of Almighty God until the fullness of times, when Christ shall have subdued all enemies under his feet, and shall have perfected his work, when he shall deliver up the kingdom and present it unto the Father spotless, saying, I have overcome and have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Then shall he be crowned with the crown of his glory, to sit on the throne of his power, to reign forever and ever. But behold, and lo, we saw the glory and the inhabitants of the telestial world, that they were as innumerable as the stars in the firmament of heaven, or as the sand upon the seashore, and heard the voice of the Lord saying, These all shall bow the knee, and every tongue shall confess to him who sits upon the throne forever and ever.
But in spite of their humble submission in the end, all these formerly wicked multitudes are required to face up to the judgment of God for every evil thing they did. For they shall be judged according to their works, and every man shall receive according to his own works, his own dominion, in the mansions which are prepared. And they shall be servants of the Most High. But where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come, worlds without end. When they have paid for their sins to the uttermost farthing, they can then become servants of the Most High. However, notice the closing comment, which should be in neon lights, quote, Where God and Christ dwell, they cannot come, worlds without end, unquote. We now come to Joseph Smith's shocked, amazed, and astonished finale, as he and Sidney Rigdon tried to summarize their ultimate conclusions of this unbelievably spectacular revelation. Here are Joseph's final words. This is the end of the vision which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the Spirit. But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord, and the mysteries of his kingdom which he showed unto us, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us we should not write while we were yet in the Spirit, and are not lawful for man to utter. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves, that through the power and manifestation of the Spirit, while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. And to God and the Lamb be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lectures recorded while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.